Hey everyone, Andrew here. I have another episode for you today that I recorded while attending the American Heart Association Conference in Philadelphia in November 2019. I attended a session on updates in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and one of the speakers, Dr. Rick Ruberg from Boston University, uh, gave a talk about excluding other causes um, when you're making the diagnosis of HFPEF. In specific, we discuss more about cardiac amyloidosis. First, we discuss about what it means to actually carry the diagnosis of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and then we go into discussing patients with cardiac amyloidosis and when to consider that diagnosis and specific populations in which that disease is more prevalent. If you look back at some of the previous episodes, you'll find an episode published in December of 2018 where I spoke with Dr. Daniel Lenahan about cardiac amyloidosis. That episode and this episode both complement each other very nicely in referring to different trials and other populations. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that one as well. Much thanks goes to the folks over at MedPage today who helped make these interviews while at AHA possible. Also, if you haven't caught on by now, I've been recording heart sounds recently while on service with consults and on the wards with using the Think Labs One digital stethoscope. The Think Labs One digital stethoscope is a best-in-class sound quality and amplification stethoscope to help you hear hard-to-miss heart sounds. You can go to their website at store.thinklabs.com for $50 off your purchase using promo code APCARDIO19. And with that, we'll get started with today's episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. say your name and your title for our audience. Sure. Thank you. It's a delight to be here today. Uh, my name is Rick Ruberg, or Frederick Ruberg is my given name, and I'm from Boston University School of Medicine in Boston, Boston Medical Center, and I am the Associate Chief of Cardiovascular Medicine for academic programs, and also I am Associate Director of the Cardiology Fellowship Program, so I have a sense of kind of a lot of different aspects of the academic job. Perfect. Thank you. And we're meeting today at uh, American Heart Association Conference in uh, Philadelphia. You gave a talk this morning about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, so exclude other causes. Right. Uh, amongst, um, as going through internal medicine residency, I picked up and noticed that the diagnosis of HEFPEF, as we'll abbreviate it, is used um, almost non-discriminately and used a lot. And so I think before we talk about more about di- excluding other causes, I kind of want to ask you about how do we define HFPEF, right. truly HFPEF? That's a very difficult question, <laughs> and many many uh, specialists struggle with that. So I don't. Uh, uh, it's there's no straightforward answer, but I th- there's a lot of different ways to think about what heart failure is. So we're talking about heart failure. That's what the HF part of it, and I think um, with with uh, HFREF, which is the abbreviation for heart failure with reduces ejection fraction, it's easy because we have some empiric measure that the heart function is abnormal, the ejection fraction. With HFPEF, the heart can look structurally normal, echocardiographically, um, and, uh, and so it becomes more challenging to find out, to, to really identify, to, to, I guess, merge the symptoms the patient's experiencing with a cardiac problem. By definition, HFPEF really is um, 
the the uh, the inability of the heart to adequately circulate volume at a, an acceptable pressure. That's kind of how we describe what what heart failure is, and that happens with when when the ejection fraction is normal or when the ejection fraction is not normal, and that's HEFPEF is when the EF is normal. I would also, uh, I mean, there's so many aspects to that question. First of all, we don't quite exactly know where that cut point truly is. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some recent evidence that suggests that maybe we should be using a uh, different cut point for what the EF is, defining HEFPEF versus HEFREF. Mm. And Just to interrupt for a bit, we've previously been using 40% or greater as being HEFPEF. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. So um, normal ejection fraction, depending upon which modality you use, is somewhere around 55 to 65%. Um, modality being whether you use MRI or echo or angiography or nuclei uh, ventriculography. Um, and HEFREF is less than 40, but we have this defined intermediate area where the EF is not quite normal. Then it kind of speaks in some ways to the, the difficulty of using EF as our discriminating variable, but that's another another discussion. So you, so HEFPEF basically is the, the concept that patient, patients have symptoms of heart failure. Those include things like shortness of breath, elevated uh, Neck veins is indicative of right-sided dysfunction. The shortness of breath would be indicative of elevated left atrial pressure, um, lower extremity edema, swelling because of high right atrial pressure, um, fatigue, um, thing, uh, problems with circulation, uh, basically general weakness, uh, exertional breathlessness. Mm. These are all symptoms of heart failure. It's but a clinical syndrome. It's a clinical syndrome, and it's often associated with many other problems that... Um, either are coexistent or probably more likely contribute to the development of that syndrome. And so one can't think about it just in isolation. It's a very complicated problem. Again, HEF-REF is a, in some ways a much easier problem to understand because the, the myocardial function is not normal. There is a systolic problem, and, and oftentimes the heart dilates, and that leads to physiologic or um, non-physiologic remodeling that causes um, the increase in pressure. With HEF-PEF, it's different. I mean, there could be a myocardial problem, like fibrosis or stiffening of the heart, but HEFPEF also can be seen in situations where you have increased volume, such as chronic kidney disease or chronic lung disease or obesity or metabolic disease like diabetes. And hypertension, obviously, is, is the more kind of, a, I guess, the cardinal uh, associated factor with HEFPEF, but that's also not an exclusive either. So it, it can be really confusing. So I think when you're approaching a patient, you have to, you have to think about um, you know, those symptoms and then Obviously, uh, not, maybe not obviously, the first line test that one gets maybe after one checks uh, a BNP, anti-proBNP serologically would mm -hmm. be an echocardiogram. And that's when we can make some estimates in the echocardiography laboratory of, uh, of filling pressures and whether or not we think there is evidence of diastolic or systolic dysfunction. But it all is really a clinical integration, and one test doesn't actually make the, make the diagnosis. Okay, perfect. I love that. So just as a summary, heart failure is a clinical syndrome. And then after establishing that syndrome, we then use an echocardiogram and BNPs to probably help confirm that echocardiogram to then stratify which type of heart failure we're now dealing with. That's right. And so once we have then dealt with the uh, entered in that area of having HEF-PEF, there are numerous causes that can lead to a heart failure syndrome. Mm -hmm and then have an ejection fraction. What are some of those uh, alternative diagnoses? Right, so um, most commonly patients who have HEFPEF will have the risk factors that we think about that are associated with cardio the development of cardiovascular disease, things like um, hypertension, uh, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, uh, 
and uh, and they often have comorbidities so they may uh, of say chronic lung disease from cigarette smoking or uh, chronic kidney disease from uncontrolled diabetes or hypertension. So these 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 um, uh, comorbidities uh, contribute to the development of HFPEP, but there are other um, other diseases uh, that I particularly am interested in that can also result in the clinical phenotype of HFPEP in the very simplistic sense that the ejection fraction is normal echocardiographically and they have heart failure. Um, and those diseases are um, in some ways kind of masked under the context of all these other common things. So a lot of what I, what I uh, have been working on in my, uh, my, my clinical and research work is to try to disentangle that signal of infiltrative heart disease or inflammatory heart disease less likely, but infiltrative heart disease that causes this phenotype of HFPEF. In specific, I'm talking about amyloid heart disease because that's the that's the uh, disease that I particularly study, mm -hmm. um, and recent s evidence has suggested that that may constitute a sizable proportion of patients with HFPEF that have previously been unrecognized. Gotcha. Yes, I think in your talk this morning you mentioned a paper from uh, one of the European journals about how there's like possibly amongst inpatients hospitalized with HFPEF up to like a 10 to 15 percent. Uh, prevalence of amyloidosis. That's right. So there, there's certain populations of patients um, in whom we uh, we believe that uh, one should look more in a, in a more targeted manner for for amyloidosis. And the reason why it's important is because amyloidosis is a very is is really kind of a it's different than the other processes that cause HFPEF. In this case, you have a clear myocardial problem. Amyloidosis is a protein folding problem where abnormally folded protein deposits in the heart, also other places in the body too. And there is a particular kind of amyloidosis that we call, it's called ATTR amyloidosis. A for the amyloid, TTR because it's the TTR or pre-albumin protein that misfolds that causes the disease. And that disease is seen really in older people only. Um, and when that happens, the heart becomes basically um, uh, um, uh, infiltrated by at this abnormally folded protein that leads to thickening of the heart muscle, impairment of relaxation of the heart muscle, and diastolic dysfunction, as well as some as systolic dysfunction. But the, in the very early to middle stages of the disease, the global measure of heart function, i.e. ejection fraction, is normal. So therefore, these patients can have pretty profound abnormalities of heart function, but the EF is still normal. Again, speaking to the kind of challenge of using ejection fraction as our be-all and end-all parameter. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important because we now have treatments for the for, for this disease, and so making that recognition um, early it, it is critically important. Gotcha. So then when we start thinking about evaluating these patients in the inpatient or even the outpatient setting after having been hospitalized mm -hmm. and thinking about whether they have amyloid, 10 to 15% is very high, but if we're starting to think about like a screening modality, the kind of options that we're left with um, you know, like cardiac MRI or right. these uh, uh, technetium pyrophosphate scans, that could really rack up a large bill if we're going to scan all of our patients with HFPEP to look for this 10 or 15 percent. Right. So I guess my question that I'm getting to is how do we increase the yield of our pretest probability right. and filter out that population even more? And what are like maybe some specific examples you could give us right. of where to think about that? That's an excellent question because um, you know, these tests are not inexpensive, although pyrophosphate imaging isn't that expensive compared to MRI. MRI tends to be more expensive, depending upon where you live and mm -hmm. who's paying for it. Um, but um, we haven't gotten to the point where, and nor should we get to the point where we know what the right screening method is for older people. Um, and you, you could, and there's many ways you can look at this. You could say we're going to start with p all people who have the phenotype of HFPEF. They already have heart failure. 
so we're going to screen them. Or you could say that all older people uh, with other si signals are things that we should we should think about screening. And um, and the reason why we want I, I mentioned that not to confuse the listeners is that once they develop heart failure, it's almost already it's not too late. We can certainly treat them, and we know the drugs work. Mm -hmm. But we'd like to try to it's like if you think about um, primary prevention for for coronary heart disease, we don't we don't. Um, start people on statins, um, for example, or treat their hypertension when they already have an MI. We do that, but well, the idea is that you want to treat them before they have their MI and reduce the likelihood they're going to develop it. So you, you know, and so the same thing can be looked at it. That, that that sort of lens can also be looked at in amyloid heart disease. Sure, we should recognize people who already have HFPEF and mm -hmm. scan them with uh, screen them with pyrophosphate imaging or MRI. But we should also maybe think about looking a couple years down uh, forward, I guess, or uh, before they actually develop HFPEF. Mm -hmm. and, and we believe that the people who, who, work, who work on this, I think it's pretty a shared consensus that there are other manifestations of disease that may be orthopedic um, or other subtle manifestations, say, by echocardiography that can be identified before the onset of, of a heart failure. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, uh, um, I think <coughs> the, the uh, gold standard uh, is tissue biopsy, but, but you can't just biopsy everybody's heart nor should you can, but that would be a really poor screening strategy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> both from expense <laughs> and risk. Um, but it is the gold standard. So the idea is to identify non-invasive ways, whether they're serologic, because there are some potential serologic clues, looking at preobulin concentration or retinal binding protein 4, which is a uh, molecule that we've been studying, or, um, or imaging, mm -hmm. to identify people earlier. Other, other things that, uh, that, that have been looked at are using um, iterative machine learning algorithms to p identify patterns in, say, the echocardiogram before someone develops amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. But I do think that a lot of our work is really focused on the phenotype that has already developed. And, then, and we are moving the needle towards uh, earlier disease identification. Mm -hmm. So how do we do it? Well, there are certain populations of people that um, we believe are uh, disproportionately affected by amyloidosis. They're all older. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and those are uh, because the disease, interestingly, even though it's um, even though we all have make the molecule prealbumin, some of us will develop ATTR amyloidosis and without any genetic mutation. And other ones, others of us will inherit a mutation, in the TTR protein that will lead to the development of the TTR amyloidosis phenotype. But it's always over the age of 40, at least for certain hereditary forms and really over the age of 60 mm -hmm. for the most common type of amyloidosis. It's called ATTR wild type where the genetics are normal. Mm -hmm. And this probably needs to be further understood. There's probably not a great understanding of that pathogenesis that takes decades and years. That's correct. That's correct. Something happens, whether it's uh, their epigenetic factors, whether they're environmental factors, whether it has to do with the um, inability to uh, of the of the uh, uh, liver tissues, for example, to manage uh, misfolded TTR protein, whether. Um, and, and this, this is interesting when you think about it in the context of other protein folding diseases, such as brain Alzheimer's disease. You mm -hmm. know, CNS, CNS, CNS disease, Alzheimer's disease, is obviously a protein folding problem as well. And there's no known association with systemic amyloidosis that we know of at the present time in that there's not a genetic factor that leads to one or the other. But for reasons that are not entirely understood, TTR protein and uh, amyloid uh, beta misfold. And... Um, in the brain, it's more complicated because I think it's it's not entirely clear whether or not the, the protein is actually the cause of or just a marker of other disease. Mm -hmm. Whereas in systemic amyloidosis, the protein clearly is the cause of the disease. Sure. But that being said, the accumulation of protein is not is not known. So we then we think about with these populations, and the specific populations to think about 
are uh, older people, any older person with heart failure, first of all, I think it should be on the differential diagnosis. Um, but generally speaking, someone with, a heart, with heart failure and normal wall thickness and, you know, and a low ejection fraction is not likely a patient with amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. Whereas an older person with thicker walls, say over 12 millimeters by echocardiography, and again, that's also an imperfect parameter, over mm -hmm. 14 millimeters with heart failure, and with a preserved ejection fraction or, or not, because later in the disease, the, disease, the ejection fraction falls. That's another group of people. Mm -hmm. There is a particular mutation. Um, mutation isn't a very nice word. It's really a polymorphism, but the genetic term is mutation, where basically there is one, uh, a single nucleotide change in the TTR protein. It actually um, is, uh, it's called V122Y, and, and it occurs in about 3.4% of U.S. African Americans, mm -hmm. which translates to a one and a half million people carrying this allele V122Y, which incidentally is read out by 23andMe, for example, so people could know their own genotype mm -hmm. in that respect. Um, we don't know, we really don't understand what the, the, the genetic penetrance of ATTR amyloidosis is, meaning like how many people who actually acquire the gene will ultimately develop amyloidosis. Sure. When they develop it, we also, we also don't know. It depends. If you look at a 45-year-old who has V122I, they're very unlikely to have amyloidosis. But an 85-year-old? So we don't know. And that's a study that, that we're actually doing right now in, in Boston and New York. Um, so uh, older, other, other uh, disease, mm -hmm. uh, other kind of populations, subpopulations, aortic stenosis patients with low flow, low gradient phenotype, that's been shown. Um, and I was particularly interested about that because it was a fairly high uh, prevalence, I think, that you reported from the, uh, in this morning's talk, like 30% or? Right, 30 p so 30% of the patients with um, low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis in a study of TAVR patients, so transcutaneous AVR patients, about mm -hmm. 150 patients from one center, Columbia, about 30% of them had uh, unappreciated cardiac amyloidosis. And of all the people undergoing TAVR, so for severe AS, about uh, 18, not about, exactly 18%, and 22% of men, mm -hmm. um, most of them were men, um, had cardiac amyloidosis. Yeah. And I think that'd be a particularly hard population to identify because with their aortic stenosis, they're going to develop a lot of left ventricular hypertrophy right. anyways. And so then, I don't know, yeah. It's hard. So, I mean, so... You know, and the other question is, what do you do about that? I mean, do you do you go ahead and do the TAVR? Do you put them on drug therapy to slow their amyloidosis? There's a drug available now called Tefambitis, which has been approved. Um, generally, I mean, I've seen a number of these patients now in referral, and what I'm recommending is that, um, especially if they're more, and it's also impossible to, I should back up, to disentangle the, how do you know the severity of the disease? I mean, we have ways to assess amyloidosis severity echocardiographically and by biomarkers, but the AS messes that all up. So you don't really mm -hmm. know whether their echo looks the way it looks or their biomarkers look the way they look because of their AS or not. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, I recommend, um, if possible, and there's a lot of considerations here, age and the severity of the heart disease, comorbidities, coronary disease, et cetera, fixing the, a the aortic stenosis, because even palliatively, that ma generally makes people feel better. Mm -hmm. And then consider treating them for ATTR amyloidosis with, with tefamidus or diflunosol, which is another potential agent that could be given um, in certain patients. So, but it becomes confusing, and there's issues of cost and um, and all that because these drugs are TAVR is not inexpensive, and uh, the treatments for amyloidosis are expensive. Mm -hmm. And I think you'd also mentioned uh, patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that there can be some overlap there as well. Yeah, right, because hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can look very similar to amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about the 20-year-olds or the 18-year-olds or the 22-year-olds who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Sure. Those patients don't get amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, I will be completely transparent. There are some very, very uncommon mutations that can occur very early in the 20, you know, aged people in their 20s. But those are almost never seen. 
and most practitioners will never encounter them. Mm-hmm. Most commonly, someone who is 20 years old with a wall thickness of 16 or 18 or 20 millimeters does not have hypertrophic, does not have amyloid heart disease. They may have HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, mm-hmm. or a phenocopy of HCM, stor- a storage disease, which also can look like HCM. Um, but we, but we believe, and again, we being people who work in this area, there's a there's a handful of of, uh, of uh, centers that are exploring this, that um, patients who are older who are diagnosed with HCM for the first time probably have uh, a size proportion of them probably have cardiac amyloidosis as their cause of their wall thickening, and that's mm-hmm. just an education thing. I think it's just people don't think about it. Um, it's I I suspect it's probably more likely that they, the o- if they're older, say over the age of seventy, develop wall thickening, they're more likely to have cardiac amyloidosis than to have HCM. Gotcha. Okay. So to kind of like summarize, so our patients who maybe have a higher pretest probability, we're talking about orthopedic manifestations. I was assuming that meant by like carpal tunnel syndrome, That's in right. particular bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. Precisely. Uh, we're talking about patients with the specific phenotype of low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis. Yep. Uh, there's African-Americans who carry this uh, polymorphism that has them at increased risk. Um, and then older patients who present with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, or that at least that phenotype may have amyloidosis as well. That's right. And there's so there, there's some clinical clues um, to the deve- whether amyloidosis is there or not. And I can I can provide some for your listeners. So, um, and again, these are not absolutes. These I, I think y- you win if you just think about it. You know, you're you're already ahead of the game if it's on your differential diagnosis and you know how to apply the testing to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And how do, and what, what, how do you know how to do that? We now finally have guidelines and consensus statements that actually help guide and unify the uh, acquisition and interpretation of imaging data. And so, as I get, because I said you're not going to biopsy everybody, that's impractical. We agree on mm-hmm. that. So this there is a, a publication that's it's actually a two-part publication that was. Uh, published earlier this year in the Journal of Nuclear Cardiology and also in um, the uh, Journal of Cardiac Failure. And both those are two uh, co-published, so I would urge the listeners to look at that to understand. It's very well done and um, and uh, really kind of looks at each modality and um, how to interpret the testing. Anyway, mm-hmm. once you figure that out, um, I think that, uh, as I said, you, you think about it first um, and then um, you, you, apply the appropri- you apply the appropriate testing. But some clinical clues would in, would include, for example, um, and, and this requires integration of clinical phenotype and some and testing. So, anybody who, for example, we talked about the orthopedic manifestations. Anybody who has bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome and say lumbar spinal stenosis or a tendon rupture, because amyloidosis deposits everywhere in the body, and we understand that there are some proportion of people who develop thickening of the ligamentum flavum of the spinal column that leads to spinal stenosis. We don't know the proportion exactly. Uh, people who develop spontaneous tendon rupture of the, say, the biceps tendon, that's that's should be a clinical clue. It's not a norm. I mean, again, these things happen. A lot of people get spinal stenosis, and a lot of people get CTS, and a lot of people have tendon rupture. Which of those have amyloidosis? That would require further imaging, but it should be on the differential. Mm-hmm. Anybody who doesn't cannot tolerate beta blockade, new heart failure patient, you know, guideline directed therapy would suggest that you want to put them on a beta blocker but then they develop hypotension and profound fatigue and feel awful on their beta blocker. That's unusual. That suggests that they may have restrictive cardiomyopathy that you didn't appreciate, mm. um, and, um, and they really are dependent upon that contractility and also dependent upon that heart rate for cardiac output. Mm-hmm. By that token, anybody who used to have hypertension, and all of a sudden you've peeled away their blood pressure medications and their wall thickness is increasing, or it's, already, it's, or it's just abnormal. That's weird. You know, m- again, I- that certainly happens with age. People often require less because there's the capacitance systems change and the blood vessels change in terms of their stiffness and all that. But again, it should be on the differential diagnosis, especially in the context of a thickening heart. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Um, anybody, right, anybody who, say, for example, has increased echocardiographic wall thickness, but ECG looks like they've got low voltage. That's weird. Mm -hmm. Most people who have hypertensive heart disease and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have thick walls, but they also have big volts on their ECG. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, there, again, there's many other reasons why someone might have low voltage on their ECG pattern, but that, that conjunction um, of those two uh, observations should trigger um, a thought process that maybe this patient might have amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. Again, in a, in a 25 year old, that I wouldn't think about it, but um, in a, in a 75 year old, it would, it would make me pause. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I really appreciate uh, you visiting with me and talking to me about those. Um, I could probably ask you like a whole bunch <laughs> of other like questions and go on more and more, but uh, no, I appreciate that. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad to, to share, um, and I hope it will be w was useful to you and your listeners. And um, if anybody has questions about what I talked about, they're welcome to reach out to me. Or um, there are a lot of resources out there where you can ask a, an amyloid specialist if you have specific questions. Um, but we're, uh, we're our, our mission, those of us, again, who work in the area, as I've alluded to, this nebulous us, is really to kind of increase awareness and get people, especially um, trainees, to think about it. Because mm -hmm. um, this is not a rare disease anymore, um, and um, it's something that you will definitely encounter in your clinical practice. Gotcha. Actually, and then you mentioned that about ways to reach out. Is there, are you on social media? There. You know, I should be on social media. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm totally dating myself. I should be on social media. Um, many reasons why I'm not but no but I um, uh, a standard email would be completely fine my email is just my first name frederick.rubrick my last name at bmc.org um, and also there uh, there are many um, as I said there's many websites amyloidosis foundation amyloidosis research consortium um, and uh, amyloidosis support groups are all places where you are conduits basically that patients and providers can use to find more information great and I'll find those uh, those uh, consensus statements and put those in the show notes sounds great cool thank you again my pleasure This episode is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. This episode is also sponsored in part by Think Labs, the creators of, a, of the Think Labs One digital stethoscope. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl.